Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is all about the limits of technology, machine, robots, and AI. I am Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone, here with my esteemed colleague, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. Wonderful to be here with you again. So for our fifth episode, we're going to answer the Shaila, the question of the week, which is, what is your favorite piece of technology or magic item from a sci-fi or fantasy realm? We're going to talk about what we've been watching and reading since our last episode, and we'll turn to our main topic, the limits of technology, machines, robots, and AI. And for our final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off some of our favorites from the past. So for this week's Shaila, Shaila, for those who want to be proper about their pronunciation. They're both correct. <laughs> they're both correct. Don't add us, Yiddishists <laughs> of the internet. Okay. <clears throat> Question of the week. What is your favorite piece of technology or a magical item from a sci-fi or fantasy world? So for me, I came back to the replicator from Star Trek The Next Generation, which is basically you just go to the computer, you tell it what you want, and it just appears in the little compartment in the device. It could be food, an object, pretty much anything, as long as it's on file, it can create from, I guess, raw atoms, pretty much anything you want. Quite a game changer. It's like the ultimate 3D printer. It would probably, you know, remove poverty, hunger, lack of technology. As long as you had one of these devices, and apparently you could even make another replicator, um, it would just change everything. And what's funny is that Picard, the captain, only ever asks for Earl Grey tea hot. Never anything more complex than that. That is his limit of using the replicator. Um, yeah, that would that is Very... my favorite device from sci-fi and fantasy. How about you? Okay, so yes, a couple of things. One, I'll also give a shout out to Star Trek, which is the transporter. I really think that mm. you know, teleportation is something that I don't know is realistic, but often in my life bring up, you know, it would be really helpful if we could just teleport places because it would. And also a thing which nowadays doesn't seem quite so high tech, which is video conferencing it was always something that I noticed and particularly thought was really, really cool in watching various sci-fi TV shows, movies growing up. And it seemed so futuristic. It was like, yeah, that's how you know you're in the future is when you can talk to someone on a screen and you can both hear and see them and now we're living in that reality which is really crazy and we'll talk about this i'll come back to this towards the end of the episode we do from the geniza but there's a particular scene in the disney channel made for television movie xenon girl of the 21st century 
where they are talking on a handheld device with someone whose face you can see it looks a lot like FaceTime. This movie was made in 1999, and at the time, that seemed like a very, very remote possibility. It was not very long after that when video chatting on a handheld device just like that became possible. And in fact, what we're doing right now, Andrew, right now. And we're looking at each other on Zoom. So we're in the future, and that is that. So it's kind of a, a mind warp. What is your favorite sci-fi or fantasy item, and what would you do with it? And you can email us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. On to now, what we read or watched lately. Lindsay, what you've been watching lately? Or reading? Or reading. Relevant to our themes, I have been watching, continuing to watch Andor, and we've been chatting a bit about that. Um, we, I just, I'm in the first season. The heist just happened in in my watching a couple of episodes ago. Lots of really interesting questions that come up for me and for this episode, I think, around the relationship between technology and how people who who use technology and are interested in resource extraction are able to leverage their technology against other populations and particularly thinking of the scene when in the heist episode where the local population is going to celebrate this particular event a lot like the Northern Lights and forgetting what they called it, but the eye. The eye, yes, this this sort of cosmic happening that everyone goes up to the top of this mountain to view. And for the local population, this is something of spiritual or cultural significance. And the imperial outpost you know kind of indulges them in their silly little native rituals in order to kind of keep the population relatively under control while they have this far superior technology and the reason whole reason that they're there is for the purpose of extracting resources what about you andrew my middle kid is home from college so we've been doing a lot of very serious television watching so we just saw across the spider-verse the sequel to into the spider-verse which is artistically a triumph and just phenomenal multiverse spider person centered storytelling just it's phenomenal a lot about fate versus free will you know if you are a spider person are you doomed to live out certain canonical moments in order to preserve the entire universe or can you actually do your own thing so fate and free will comes up nicely we watched queer eye season seven set in new orleans always a great watch the great on hulu which is a lightly historically inspired series about catherine the great 
who brought French philosophy and science to Russia. She created what we think of as now as very intellectual Russian culture. She ushered that in a very strange series. She created the roller coaster, which is a cool thing to have invented for anybody. I'm watching the silo on Apple TV, which is thousands of people living in this underground 144 story silo. They don't know why they're there. The world outside appears to be toxic and it's unclear what's going on. So we're slowly figuring out what's going on. I watched the end of Ted Lasso, which will definitely be appearing in the high holiday sermon for sure. And I just also finished the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a very Jewish show, just finished season five and thoroughly enjoyed just that. The last season was very out of time, lots of like jumps in time back and forth playing with the timeline, even within like one event, like before and after, back and forth, sort of in a nice non-linear fashion. So it's been quite a watching month for me. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. I would say yeah. Across the Spider-Verse is the best thing I've seen all year. It is wow. so good. The artwork, the animation, the storytelling, the voice acting, it's just, there's very little at this level of quality. It's so good. They make Pixar feel dull. Hmm. I compare this to Elemental. I'll watch on Disney Plus, but I would pay money to watch Across the Spider-Verse again. And the next one's coming out in March, which is the third one of the series. Which oh, is, wow. Yeah, yeah. I cannot commend it enough. So, yeah. Well, since you were branching off from sure. our genres, you know, I although I did like the way that you connected The Great to technology, I've also been watching The Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i'm i had kept up with it and was excited that there was a, a season three and for it's a fun series for a lot of reasons and huzzah huzzah <laughs> i just need a shot glass to throw over my shoulder huzzah I'm in between and searching for a new show like i need something that's like the half hour format like I like to have a balance of hour long things, half hour long things, depending on what the need of the moment is. Things that are serious that require me to pay attention, things that are not so serious when I need to laugh. And also I have little kids, so the stuff that is playing often <laughs> in the background is different than what you're watching with your kids. Yeah, you can have a lot have of the Disney great movies. Arm of little children that will not work. No, that is a when they No, no, no. Sleep. That is a everybody needs to be safely in bed kind of situation. But what I mean is that my my kids when they're up are, are watching different things, so my younger one's often watching all of the the more recent Disney movies, so we've got a lot of Frozen always happening, Moana, Encanto and with my older one we're continuing to explore Harry Potter and just watched the second Harry Potter movie together. I also began watching the last season of The Flash which gave me an idea a world where superheroes are not exceedingly handsome and good looking the average people who you would ignore in a crowd but they're the ones with the powers wouldn't that be mm -hmm. cool a world where it's not the gorgeous who have all the power that'd be nice wow yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you know like, what i hadn't really thought about it so much they're always like, yeah they're always they always have to be exceedingly attractive they're exceedingly good looking people <laughs> clark kent even it's like they try to make him nerdy it's the whole standard you know 
trope of the glow up where it's like a makeover kind of thing too. There's always the girl who's nerdy and, you know, she's all that. Another movie from my, my youth where it's basically all they have to do is take off her glasses and fix her hair a little bit. And it's like, wow, who knew the nerd girl is exceptionally gorgeous. Yeah. They use that trope in wonder woman 84 with, cheetah and it was such a cliche use of the the nerd girl trope you know she can't walk in heels properly and blah 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 mm-hmm. yeah like oh my goodness gracious yeah that <laughs> that's a cliche that i would like to end right yeah yeah also people as superheroes that would be great yeah and also sometimes you can be a nerdy woman and still be able to walk in heels that's right <laughs> a clumsy that's, superhero that's... <laughs> Let us turn to our main topic, the limits of technology, machines, robots, and AI. The big question is, is there a limit to what a machine should be enabled or empowered to do? And if there is no limit, why not? And if there is a limit, what is it? And secondary question, how much can machines do before we lose our humanity? And what is the Jewish take on all of that? And we have a specific one. There was an article in the Times of Israel by David Svi Kalman, who noted that a lot of the debate and discussion and hand-wringing about ChatGPT and other companies increasing use of artificial intelligence online, all of that debate, all the conversation reminded him of very similar concerns raised in the 1860s, 70s, and 1880s about the rise of machines used to bake matzah for Passover. And I I found on Safaria a very nice collection of sources that someone put together. This is a story that pervades so many sci-fi and fantasy stories just to dip into a number of them quickly, just to reinforce how much this comes up. Everything in the Terminator series, humanity creates Skynet AI, which achieves Mm -hmm. the singularity of consciousness and then decides to wipe out humanity, which is very similar to the matrix. They actually may even have the same original author creator behind them, where there's also a machine uprising that enslave us to become batteries. In the Dune series, there are no robots, there are no computers, they do not rely on them. Because in Herbert's original Dune timeline, he mentions kind of briefly, oh, there was this thing called the Butlerian Jihad, and they wiped out all of the artificial intelligence, and they refused to use it ever again too dangerous. So they rely upon humans to do all their thinking with human computers called Mentats and the consumption of spice. You know, this idea of human computers, just as a Jewish point of connection, like the Tanaim, according to a lot of modern scholarship, like these were people who whose job it was basically to just have memorized all of the the oral Torah, Jewish tradition, and be able to rattle it off when Mm. prompted, because literally means repeaters. So there's something that that's just struck me as a similarity in what you were sharing about Dune and reliance on men's as being, you know, yeah, they are the keepers of knowledge. They don't even want to put it down in a book. And I think we we might get into right the technology of writing and the book 
a little bit later on as well. Right, right. What format do you trust to record your data? Do you trust humans, books, clay tablets, floppy disks, zip drives, USB <laughs> drives, all those things? They're all going to get eventually outdated. And then all you the get cloud. is reachable. The cloud, which are just big computers far away. Right. What yes, Skynet. Right. Where do you trust to record your data? In the Star Trek parody homage, the Orville, there's a robotic uprising. Isaac, who is their one, he's like their token non-human. He's from this powerful robotic civilization that is a lot like the Borg in actual Star Trek, trying to basically take over the human fleshy world. Um, Isaac Asimov's iRobot raises up the classic concerns about the danger of robots who are then controlled with the three robotic laws. Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter wrote a series called The Long Earth, where a very simple technology lets human beings step to various versions of Earth. You know, what happens when humans have unfettered access to limitless natural resources? How would that affect our world when people just spread out? And then the Jetsons, set not too far from our own year, had a lot of tech that is kind of what we're heading out kind of tech that we are getting closer to video conferencing other things and more of a benign use of technology there's no fear in the jetsons it's all very nice and useful and then a, a funny one douglas adams dirk gently's holistic detective agency where he has an electric monk that just believes things for you which then goes off the rails and then lord of the rings to bring in some fantasy where it's all about you know, Tolkien's veneration of the pastoral life epitomized by the hobbits, threatened by the mechanical, cruel Sauron and Saruman. And even if you look at the swords, the swords of, of humans and elves are beautiful. They have stories and history. And when they're broken, they still inspire Aragorn to not be like his ancestor. The swords are just remarkable. But the swords of the Urukai are basically spiky cleavers meant to kill. There's no, no attention, no art, no beauty, no history, no nothing. They're just purely functional. And you mentioned the eating up of resources at the expense of other people. So it's a theme that pops up over and over and over and over again. Now we're going to look at the Jewish take on that through the lens of these concerns about machines that bake matzah. So let's get into it. So yeah. in the 1880s is when it really kind of comes to a head. People have begun to create machines that can bake matzah, the unleavened bread eaten during Passover. And there is naturally skepticism about, are these machines good? Are they bad? What kind of questions do they raise for us? And should we use them? Shouldn't we use them? It becomes a major question among the rabbis of Eastern and Western Europe in that time period. It's also happening in the US as well, but there's not as much concern about using them. But in Europe, there's a lot of fear about this new technological innovation. So Rabbi Abraham Bornstein, who was in a town in Poland that I cannot <laughs> without being rude to the Sup town in Poland. Yeah, I'm sorry. So he, he's writing to a town <laughs> who had fired their rabbi because he 
prohibited the matzah machine. So the rabbi writing says, number one, permitting the matzah machine was a terrible thing, but you shouldn't have fired the rabbi over it. So he wants them to basically get rid of the matzah machine and rehire back their rabbi. So he doesn't like it. But, you know, a rabbi who prohibits the matzah machine is out of his job because the people really wanted it. But the rabbi in charge of the town didn't want it, so they basically ran him out of town. And this other colleague is trying to get them to rectify the situation. So it was clearly a very fraught issue that was dividing mm-hmm. communities. Also, I just, yeah, go ahead. No, you're saying. Oh, I had another comment, which is, you know, just noting that the, the concern here is that uh, they cheated him out of his livelihood and reduced his established salary and did other things. For any anyone here who is on uh, congregational boards and responsible for uh, hiring and rabbinic salaries and stuff, just uh, take note of that. There is a concern in some of the sources that the machines are going to have a higher level of heat and that the heat is going to cause the process of fermentation to happen faster than it should. And since masa has to be done within 18 minutes, if it gets to that fermentation point before that, it'll ruin all of the matzah in that batch. And that would then waste time, money, energy, resources, and of course, in the, in the contrast, hand-working the matzah doesn't cause that problem. So there's already this, there's certain nuances that people get that machines don't get. Like we're more attuned to subtle variations, the quantity of bubbles maybe in the dough that would indicate mm-hmm. fermentation that a machine, certainly at that time period, is just not going to be able to be sensitive to as a person would. Right. It's another rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, you know, a person would find either cracked or whole wheat in the batch, which could become a problem, whereas a machine is never going to be able to actually identify an individual grain of wheat, but a human with, you know, the sensitive fingers we have would be able to find them when needing dough, but a machine would just pass it on and it would then contaminate the entire batch. Again, hands yeah. are the best technology for making mm-hmm. certain things because of the attention and care needed. Machines simply are just insensitive and humans are right. just far more sensitive. And so then, it seems uh, to me like yeah. there are a couple of different issues so far that are, that are in play here. Yeah. One is, right, the sensitivity. One is that machines are simply not able to do certain things that humans are able to do. They are mechanical. They, you just run a process and that's what it does. And then the other piece, right. That you, you mentioned about fermentation. It's like, yes, it's not only about human ability to identify, oh, is fermentation taking place? It's also that there's something about the process of the machine itself that we're concerned about is going to cause these problems, right? The one from the this idea that the that the process that's used by the machine is more likely to cause fermentation to happen and not only that as we said before the machine is unable to identify some of these subtleties that are really important for making kushal pesach Matzah. And then another concern, this is a concern of Rabbi Chaim ben Arye Leib Halberstam of Poland from Sans. 
he just notes that the machines, it's simply, they're impossible to clean. There's something about the machine's intricacy that is going to be impossible. Like you can run one batch, but then to actually run the next batch would take either an inordinate amount of time to clean and prepare, or it would be impossible to actually fully clean it. And then you've got Hamates running through it regardless. It's simply impossible. Now, all of these rabbis I have mentioned have not yet seen matzah baking machines. They're all talking about hmm. it in theory from what they've heard. They're talking about it without having actually witnessed it firsthand yet. So there's a lot of it is based on you know speculation, concern, stringency, and, mm -hmm. and hearsay, and they're just figuring out you know what reasons why they will not permit it. Right. So can I ask a question? Of course, of about course. That? Yeah. What I'm what's coming to mind is right are they are they in in these sources actually weighing in to make a decision about whether or not it's forbidden, or are they just starting to think about what the issues are with a new technology that's being introduced? Because the second of those options, it reminds me a lot of a lot of the conversation that we've seen happen over the past several years in halachic discussions that are around things that are technologies that are emerging, but that have not yet really come into full use. One that we were talking about in our conversation is conversation around lab-grown meat, right? So a few years ago, that was just a theoretical conversation. It was like, what would be the issues? So you can have a lot of discussion around what would be the issues with this thing that we think might be on the horizon or might we, we might be confronted with needing to make actual decisions about. But meanwhile, we're starting to have the conversations about it before it's actually becoming something that we need to make a firm decision about in our community. So I'm wondering for some of these rabbis, it's not yet in their town or, I mean, the machines exist, but it kind of, is it, is it that they are coming to the conclusion firmly okay yes or no this is prohibited this is permitted or is it i want to play out like what would the possible concerns be in order to determine if any given matzah baking machine would be acceptable for use i think this is very preventative the language of these rabbinic responsa is very much in the future concern like you know will they be able to or only a person would be able to and machine would not be able to this is not evidence-based writing yet this is heading it off before it gets to them so that when the machine kind of knocking at their door they're already like no no we're good thanks so this is proactive defensive writing i think but i'm not positive these are already being used in Western Europe. I think that as a lot of innovation kind of begins in the West and moves to the East, they're trying to stave off the influence of Western German Jewish influence. We had, we had one source where it was specifically, we do not bring proofs from German rabbis. Nothing they say matters to us. They're just <laughs> off the rails. That and bot coal, you know, we don't bring, that, use right, heavenly yeah, voices do. or German rabbis. Yeah, no, we don't listen because the, the rabbis of Germany were far more open to technology, science, innovation than the rabbis of Eastern Europe. It's a really huge cultural divide 
within European Judaism. Saying Ashkenazi is really just glosses over so much of the cultural differences of of European Jews. Some of this last night with somebody who heard he has Ashkenazi heritage, I said, well, it means European, but it used to be specifically German versus Poland, Ukrainian, Russian, Hungarian. They're very different. And Mm -hmm. uh, it really, you know, like enlightenment hits Western European Jews never really hits much of Eastern European Jewish life, maybe Odessa, like the one port city right. where there's a lot of openness. There's one rabbi I read about many years ago who had one book of an enlightenment Jewish author and the town tried to kill him, poison his family, <laughs> fire him. And basically they fled to Odessa where it was safe. The yeah. one town in Ukraine where you could be enlightened and Jewish and Orthodox and not be murdered. It's also not an accident that Odessa and and other places around that end up being, you know, the places where a lot of these other like modern Jewish movements around, you know, Hebrew and Zionism get discussed and disseminated more readily because of sort of the cultural difference there. But before you went into this thinking about, right, it's not just that the Germans are more open to technology. It's like, think about like the moment at which this is happening. This is the late 19th century. This is like, there is a religious fight starting to happen and go on between what's going on in Germany in particular, right? You've got the reform movement. You've got neo-orthodoxy as embodied by Samson Raphael Hirsch, who we've talked about before and trying to kind of create this synthesis between, oh, you can be an observant Jewish person and also be a participant in the wider culture in certain kinds of ways. And the rabbis of Eastern Europe and some of these communities where, yes, it's both true that they don't have access to the same technology or it's not you know coming to them at the same pace and also political changes in the status of Jews in those places are are in a very different place than they are in parts of Western Europe. But there's also this like undercurrent that the rabbis of Germany and these other places are being far too permissive. And it's, it's in general, not just about technical issues and that like part of how we define ourselves and us versus them um, is, is by being more stringent and this continues to shape and affect and play out today in Jewish communities today and like how it is that we define who we are vis-a-vis other communities and the leading this leading to greater stringencies being adopted in some communities. Yeah, so Hirsch, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, he has a famous quote of his. He's critiquing people who let larger cultural norms drive religious evolution. And he says that's really the wrong thing. It really should be religion should be the main driving force. And it can it can utilize civilization and technology to help its aims versus making religion fit into the current civilization's aims. So he was very open to technology helping Jews achieve Jewish goals. So in Western Europe and Germany, they were very open to, oh, matzo machines can bake matzos quickly, more efficiently and more affordably. Let's do that. No hesitation whatsoever. They were very happy to let technology come in to help achieve Jewish aims. 
and, and some of the other concerns in Europe just kind of go back to you know Poland were that um if people don't bake their own matzah and people will take care if they're doing it for themselves there's like a kind of a care and concern oh I want to make kosher matzah for my family or for my town but people who are doing it on a large scale will be thinking about commercial profits and they won't be concerned about the kashrut of them so that's one concern another is that people apparently one of the ways they actually earned money for the spring was by working as matzah bakers and machines would basically take mm -hmm. away their jobs that feels like mm -hmm. an AI conversation. You know, how many jobs will ChatGPT destroy in the coming years? Passover was a time for people to make money, to maybe get through Passover. And also, matzah had to be round, which was the norm. And square matzah just didn't look like matzah. And it just didn't feel right. It just didn't create an authentic product. Um, uh -huh. And that's also a thing as well. And right. This might be surprising for some of our listeners. Yeah, matzah used to be you, round. Yeah. It was all handmade, but you know, machines make square things so that the <laughs> corners wouldn't get wasted. Now you can still buy handmade matzah, and that's great. Yeah. You can even bake your own matzah if you have the the setup needed. You have it. the stuff. However, some of the concerns that some sources mention are, well, yes, people do bake matzah, but we don't have a lot of people who can bake matzah anymore. Our workforce is down. So this turns towards why we actually need machines. Like we don't have the quantity of qualified Jewish bakers we used to, and they're not great. They don't listen to the supervisors. They're not careful. They're just there to make money and get out. So there's a, a need that a matzah baking machine would actually help fulfill in areas where there is not qualified labor force to do that. And this one rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Sofer, he says, okay, I bought a machine way in advance. I did test runs to actually see what will it produce. He says, they're great. So here we have evidence-based evaluation of this new technology. He says it was done with greater alacrity than with human workers and with fewer workers who were qualified, easier to supervise the whole process. So none of the concerns about the machine being too hot, too hard to clean and insensitive, those were not real concerns with an actual machine. They were concerns before they actually had one. But once you actually have a machine, they had taken care of the problem. And then the small workforce works. So technology can be the solution to problems, you know, which right. was probably kind of what Hirsch was getting at, which yes, we have a problem. Technology can help us solve a Jewish problem in a Jewish way to a Jewish end. That's not going to compromise who we are. But the Shulchan Aruch says that only Jews can make matzah. So mm -hmm. does he mean the whole process or just part of the process? It used to be the whole process, but with machines, it became part of the process. But there is still this value of Jewish people baking their matzah because that's what we did in Egypt. There's an experiential right. component. There's a Jewish identity yeah. component that also is lost when machines bake it. And goodness knows how many people in, in the world have actually made matzah by hand. Very few. It's Right. Today. You know, Today, it's been given Today. over to the machines almost exclusively, and there's a loss there. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk of, about that. Yeah, the <laughs> loss. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a couple of different things, right? Because you you were talking about the experiential piece. This that there's something. Was that mentioned by one of the sources? I think when we were talking about this earlier. The Shulchan Aruch says that only Jews can make matzah. Right, that. But I mean, this experience of connecting with the actual lived experience of our ancestors in Egypt, who, according to the Torah, had to bake this, brought their dough with them and didn't have time to rise and are baking it rapidly. Was that something that was actually cited in any of the sources or something that you were It's just kind of like assumed in the sources that there are, that Jewish people are the ones making matzah locally. It's all local, it's all handmade. Maybe it's in a town with a small workforce or it's individuals for their family. The one time I actually saw matzah making at home, it was a Yemenite man who made it Mm -hmm. for his family. For even for his family and for a friend's family, we went to their home before Passover and they made soft matzah. Matzah racha, soft matzah was the norm for centuries and centuries. He gave us, I think, three matzahs for Passover, two mm-hmm. in a backup. And it was really cool seeing matzah made by hand. They made their own matzah just like we did in Egypt. And it mm-hmm. felt very empowering. Even just to watch it was very empowering. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think there's the experiential piece. And I think there's this other question that I think has to do with, with, well, there are a lot of different questions when it comes to food in particular and making food when it comes to involvement of Jews in the, in the food preparation process, particularly with certain things. We can talk about that maybe separately, but Kavana intention, this idea that Things that have a particular ritual purpose often in Judaism need to be made with the intention for that purpose. Have have any of these sources engaged with that question so much? But in general, if we're broadening this out from just talking about the specific question of matzah to talking about like the role of technology and religious practice or particularly Jewish religious practice and the ways that our tradition has resisted incorporating new technologies into the process, particularly of making items that have religious or ritual purpose or significance. Because there's a special, a particular need, right? Not only as the sources had identified in talking about the matzah baking machines that oh they the machines can't identify they don't have the sensitivity that humans do certainly that there's like something special about what we bring with intention to the process of making something that imbues it with this kind of religious significance and it cannot be done by a machine and it also cannot be done by a person who does not have that proper intent so one right. example of that that we talked about was sofrut, right? Writing Sifrei Torah and other particular things, writing the cloth that goes in a mezuzah or tefillin. It can only be done by hand, by a specially trained sofer scribe who follows particular practices and uses the special materials that are designated for this. We still read 
the Torah on a scroll. <laughs> We've even resisted the technology of the Codex, a book where you can turn the pages. This thing has to be handwritten on a scroll made of parchment with this particular ink, with a certain kind of pen in this particular way. And the intention that of uh, the knowledge that a person is the one who's like behind this is also a huge part of what I think what gives it power. And I don't know, thinking just beyond the religious context, I do a lot of craft and I, I don't know, been into ceramics lately. And there's something that is different about handmade objects that I think a lot of people experience. Something that comes up in a highly tech-driven or industrialized society where suddenly when manufactured goods become the norm where everything is the same and everything is perfect, then the handmade, the things that are made by people start to become more valuable. Mm -hmm. One way that I think about that in food is in the technology of refrigeration. I'm interested in fermentation. That's kind of one of the crafts that I do. I like to right. uh, do fermentation. I make sourdough. I've brewed beer and mead. I want to do that again. And I've been making pickles more and more. I actually made pickles yesterday for lunch for a Saturday. And there's this book called The Art of Fermentation by a guy named, I think it's Sanford Katz, happens to be Jewish. And he says, we all rely on this very new technology, refrigeration. And prior to that, we had all these well-known techniques of food preservation, salting, curing, brining, pickling, fermenting, you name it. And they made the food that you harvested and pulled from your garden, fields, orchards last through the winter. And as long as we have refrigerators, it'll be okay. But if that ever goes away, the lost knowledge will be devastating. And he's, he's there to teach them these hand crafting skills so that they are not lost. Back to the long earth for a second. In the long earth, because people can step from one earth to the next, and only ours has people on it, but there's like all these like um, natural resources over and over and over again, but you can't bring iron from world to world. So the lost craft of blacksmithy spreads like wildfire. All of a sudden, everyone's learning how to be a smith again because you need it. Because if you have a hammer, you can't take it with you to the next world. You have to get a hammer there. They don't transfer. You would have like the empty handle, but not the head of the hammer itself. So those lost arts and crafts are revived in the long earth. One of the effects of the long earth is, you know, how to make log cabins comes back how to build roads. Everyone knows how to build roads now because everyone is doing it mm -hmm. spread along the long earth. So if we let everything be mechanized and produced in industrial settings, if those settings were to go away suddenly because of a crisis, our lack of knowledge would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the fears of technology is if you let technology do too much, if it goes away, you will be bereft. And that's a very right. serious concern. The movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, a man falls in love with his phone's artificial intelligent assistant. I mean, they truly like they have a relationship 
And when she um, and all the other AIs, all the other phones basically evolve, they just leave and everyone is just left alone from these companions that they had. They have to relearn how to date people, basically, which is a very interesting <laughs> kind of like the loss of how to relate to other people, which technology had replaced, leaves mm -hmm. them bereft as well. So all technology, the threat of it going away threatens a vacuum of knowledge. If matzo machines went away, we all know how to make matzo again. Yeah. And it would be very right. difficult. Thank God we have Sofairs who can write our Torah scrolls and all of our various other parchments. It's interesting because I think it also raises questions, not just about technology, but about outsourcing mm -hmm. and outsourcing Judaism. And I think some of this does have to do with technology. I think a lot of it is an outcome of living in an industrialized society more broadly. And these are questions that I think about a lot. And I know many people are talking about, which is great. You, you kind of get disempowered when you are so many steps removed from the process of creating or processing the requirements for an observant Jewish life. Like in theory, it should be, you know, easier than ever for people to keep kosher because like we have, you know, thousands of products on the grocery store shelf mm -hmm. that are supervised by these agencies. But it's like, it also is like this process that most of us don't see and are not engaged with. And it's like, it starts to feel less real, at least to me. This is something that, that it connects with that we've talked about before as well, which is not having to do things yourself and not having to have that knowledge, whether it comes to, let's say, Kashrut, you know, before everybody had symbols printed on packaging of store-bought foods, you know, in the sort of like pre-industrial, before that period, most of your food was something that you could either see and perceive yourself, or you went to your local butcher who you knew follow the proper rules for kosher slaughter. For, you went to your local Jewish baker who you could rely upon to have properly baked, you know, whatever bread products you're buying or you made bread yourself. You were intimately involved on a day-to-day -day basis of determining like whether the food that you were going to eat was in fact kosher. And if you didn't have the ability to determine that for yourself, you were probably only a step or two removed from the person who did have the ability to do that. But now you don't have that. People get nervous. Things are further removed from them and they want assurances that it's okay. So it ends up leading to stringencies and ridiculous things like people putting hexures on stuff that really doesn't need a hexture. And I particularly experience this, this every year around Pesach, like the number of products that get created are specifically Pesach things that aren't even food products in some cases because people are so, so worried and they've so outsourced and gotten so distanced from, okay, what is it that I actually need to be doing that it's easier for somebody to just say, okay, assume everything is forbidden unless it has the stamp of official stamp of approval on it. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. So I have a lot to say about Passover and food and processing. This year, when I was shopping for Passover, and I would find things that I knew were fine for Passover, but didn't have the Passover 
Hexer on them, I felt a mix of feelings about it. I felt one, I am empowered, I know what's going on, but I also felt the fear. What if I'm wrong? I definitely felt being in sort of in this gray territory, relying upon the authority of my colleagues to tell me this is kosher for Passover, even though it doesn't say it is, just trusting, you know, my friends and colleagues to guide me. It's all about trust. Um, <laughs> the reclamation of kosher slaughter of poultry in particular, being now reclaimed by more and more people, people I meet, people who just live in rural areas, they go, I want to do my own kosher slaughter. And colleagues of ours who are learning these skills, mm -hmm. that is fascinating, seeing that taken back from industrialized, mechanized kosher industry, which can be dehumanizing in that we're not part of the process. And we just have all this loss of knowledge. And that, mm -hmm. but taking that back is such an interesting reaction to that. That's like that is like a a reaction against the industrial and technological infrastructure that is taking kashrut from people's homes. It's now slowly working its way back. Mm -hmm. In Mandalorian season three, there's a planet run by Lizzo and Jack Black, but not as themselves, <laughs> and they're using robots. So much so that everybody has all this time for literature, art, philosophy, and entertainment. They've actually forgotten the day-to-day -day living skills. And so there's somebody who's trying to take the robots out so that people will remember how to actually do the actions of daily living. So it's interesting, there's ideal society, but the problem is that they're totally their children. If the robots went away the next day, they couldn't do anything. They mm -hmm. wouldn't know how to drive a car. They wouldn't know how to cook. They've lost all their skills within one generation. Mm -hmm. It happens so fast on that planet. And so Christopher Lloyd's character is trying to basically make the robots look bad so they get kicked out so that people will then <laughs> relearn all these important skills. No one has a horrible motive here, you know, self-actualization, but loss of a kind of humanity. Um, mm -hmm. And the robots themselves, they go, we just want to be helpful. Oh. They also, because they are artificial intelligence, they also have a desire to be fulfilled and to, and to help fulfill others' needs. One of the, the ways the technology gets explored in a lot of sci-fi work is around reproduction and birth. There's lots of different ways that we see this, right? There's the genetic alterations that in control over people's genes and allowing for people to hand pick their baby's genome as we see in movies like Gattaca and creating like a new class system. There's incubation of fetuses in artificial wombs in Brave New World and Matrix. They're not generating humans that way, are they? I guess they are. They're they actually, are. they basically have machine wombs in fields like farms growing infants and at some point the infant is put into its pod with all the tubes mm -hmm. to keep it alive and put it in the matrix as an infant mm -hmm. ugh. yeah ugh. right but you know some of what we were talking about around some of those things getting explored in sci-fi fantasy or particularly sci-fi situations that are often dystopian 
but it's also interesting because that idea of having a non-human incubator for growing fetuses is something that has actually been raised by certain streams of feminist thinkers who argue that women and men cannot be fully equal in society if the burden of reproduction is solely on women. So they are of the mind that we should be developing technology in order to kind of level the playing field, as it were. But, right, that also raises a lot of other questions that have to do with, like, individual human experiences and how different people feel about the process of pregnancy and birth taking places in their own body mm-hmm. experience like some really exp- when we're talking about experiential i'm like that's about as hands-on and experiential yeah. as you can get and yeah to think about with any kind of technological possibility what are the potential benefits and what might you lose in terms of access to certain elements of the human experience if you adopt a particular way of doing things. In Brave New World, they meet a woman who was sort of outside of their society and Mm. became pregnant and had to give birth. And when she looks back on the experience, it is with an extraordinary level of revulsion. There is no appreciation of the power of the strength that she had it was all about the pain and the goo and how awful it was so the whole narrative around birth having been so removed into the realm of technology just became this disgusting thing of the past that she was forced to do Mm -hmm. Um, and the matrix is clearly meant to horrify us like how horrifying it is that they're being raised in farms in glass bubbles and you're just totally off put by it but Mm -hmm. that's how far humanity has been enslaved they're not even able to reproduce naturally they're completely Mm -hmm. raised now under the total control of machines even even in their birth right and it's become the flip which is that the biological entities are in service to the machine and not the other way around. Any conversations around birth and technology get really complicated really fast because there's a lot of very different views about this and, and experiences. And it was interesting as you were talking about the scene in Brave New World, that like feeling of revulsion, you know, there are people who feel that way whether they've experienced birth themselves or observed it themselves or not and that is an experience that people have and i think some of it is influenced by what whatever your sort of cultural narrative is and what the standard practices mm-hmm. around birth and technology are so right. if you're used to a situation where it's like you go into a clean hospital and you know a la the 1950s you're knocked out with twilight sleep and have no experience at all of what happens or memory at all of what happens but you come out the other side and there's a baby that's a very very technologically driven way of engaging with birth and for some people right that might have 
felt like a relief, like, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to experience this potentially painful and traumatic and maybe messy and maybe even repulsive experience for some people. But of course, that also takes agency out of people's hands to be able to make their the, the decisions that they want to make for the experience that they want to have. And so there was a pushback that's happened against that kind of high level of technological intervention in birth. Yeah, we tried to do home births for our second two kids. It did not work out for very significant not threatening, but, you know, well mm-hmm. medical reasons. And in the hospital settings, Paula always tried to retain her agency as much as she possibly could within the realm of reasonable medical limits. So we always right. this balancing act where every technological, you know, move we made, we kind of, as much as we could, we weighed the pros and cons. She did have two very, very powerful moving hospital births with midwives and doulas present, helping us navigate the technological piece of it all, which was very interesting. One of the technologies that affects halakha is the C-section. And Mm. if a woman has a C-section, you know, one of the impacts is that if she were to have a C-section on Shabbat, eight days later is the next Shabbat and the rabbis for reasons which may be both devaluing and being helpful. One could read this decision either way. They push off the Brit Milah one day, which could be read as, oh, you're saying I didn't have a real birth and I can't really violate Shabbat to do it on that day? How offensive. Or, mm-hmm. my goodness, as you mentioned, thank goodness, a Brit Milah on Shabbat is a logistical nightmare. I don't want to do that. I'm so grateful it's on Sunday. Thank you for being lenient when you could. And you can read it either way, as you very aptly noted. But mm-hmm. that's one place where the technology does shift halakha and does sort of put the, say, the normative experience in a certain place of normalcy slash privilege slash inconvenience because it's unavoidable Mm -hmm. versus when technology steps in things shift become more flexible which is both good and bad so what's gained what's lost right depends on how you read the situation it's not so simple but it does change things right i mean there's all kinds of other areas having to do with reproductive technology particularly Mm -hmm. You know IVF and things like that that we could go into but just backtracking for a minute yeah. when you were speaking about you know being advocates for yourself and for yourselves and making decisions in the hospital setting around birth and the various different kinds of, of medical interventions that might be involved it also you know brings up for me again like how many different choices there are or things there are that you could potentially need to know about in order to be able to make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. And it brought me back to the conversation we were having around, you know, halakha and agency and how when things get very complex, often it's easier to just sort of say, okay, I'm just going to hand over all the decision-making power to the people who, to the experts, like the people Mm. who know what's supposed to be going on. It's like, I don't have the expertise to know whether or not this thing is kosher. They're saying all these things to me in the hospital about, do you want, you know, this intervention or this intervention, or do you want this? Do you want epidural? Do you want, you know, 
Pitocin, what do you want what, without necessarily going into all the detail of what all those things are. And you do, in order to, to self-advocate, you have to both have the presence of mind or a person with you has the presence of mind to ask those questions or have engaged in a lot of education yourself before that point. They can kind of end up in, you know, the, this, this problem of, right, being disempowered because of the sense that there's this huge body of knowledge that's inaccessible to you and you are not able to make appropriate decisions on your own. And that's so much just like every little piece of every case where when we give over something we do by hand to either someone else or to a mechanized process, there's just that loss of knowledge and experience. Like, I do not know how to properly check the chicken, but I know where to buy kosher meat. And if the kosher meat no longer exists, I'm out of kosher chicken. Mm -hmm. That's it. I would have to relearn the whole process, and I would not know who to go to in Kansas to do that. I would be bereft mm -hmm. of chicken eating, which maybe is a good or bad thing. I don't know. But... Yeah. Or you would do what people probably have always done, which is, you know, you got the book, you know how to read, you know, you have the Shulchan Aruch, right, do right. best to read it and try to make sense of it and say, listen, you know, if we're in some kind of post-apocalyptic reality where we're like cut off from everybody else outside of our community here, right. and if I'm the best qualified guy to figure this out. I'm making the decision on behalf of my community with the knowledge that I have in this moment. Right. Do you have a copy of Isaac Klein? Yeah. Right. Isaac Klein, for those who are listening who don't know, wrote, he wrote the book of conservative halakha in like the middle of mid-century, 20th century, maybe the 60s. I forget when maybe he wrote 60s. it. 60s, yeah. Maybe he has an extensive later. section on how to properly check animals. It's a lot of detail there. It's why I keep my copy. Just, just make sure you have a knife sharpener handy. So it's so funny. We were visiting Marion, Kansas last week, and we actually saw three vintage knife sharpeners on a wheel. Whetstones. Mm -hmm. Almost bought one. Almost bought one. Maybe we should have learned how to we sharpen. We should have. We're going to have to check something. I know. You know, it's only an hour away. I'll go back and pick one up. Let's wrap up. I'm fascinated with how I think we have a very Jewish halakhic approach to technological evaluation. We have something unique to say in this space, I think, that is helpful. So, you know, we talked about, you know, weighing the risk. How will this technology cut people off from the experience versus what issues and problems will this new technology solve? Every technology appears to just have that same give and take. What are the pros? What are the cons? What's lost? Mm -hmm. What's gained? And we don't often know the full impact of it until it's actually embraced and out there. And then, you know, one generation later, they kind of see, oh, yeah, look what that did. Right. And yeah, we're engaging with this today. You know, I, one of the things that we were talking about is, you know, in every generation, there's always some concern about whatever new technology is, is available or a new form of media or whatever it is. And usually a concern about how it's going to like negatively impact the youth or corrupt them in some way. And this has literally been going on for thousands of years. <laughs> and often it's the case that 
things don't turn out as poorly as the people who were concerned about it worried that they might. But it's also worth always having a careful, thoughtful conversation about new technologies and what the impacts could be. What what are those consequences? And even if we disagreed with, you know, the ultimate conclusion of some of these, the rabbis who were evaluating, let's say, the implementation of matzah making machines in Eastern Europe at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, they are engaging in this process of thinking through what are the implications of this? Is it worth it for us to adopt this? What do we lose by doing it? And also looking at, you know, what problems might it solve for us as a community? What halachic problems might it solve? Making matzah available to more Jews so they can observe the holiday of Passover is a, a really significant thing. And we're, we're constantly weighing all of these things against each other all the time, competing values. And I think the value that Jewish and other religious and philosophical systems and the humanities can contribute to any conversations around science and technology, right? Science can show you how to do the thing, like how to map the entire human genome, how to build AI systems, but we need to have this other conversation alongside of that, which, you know, we're kind of seeing happen right now with some of the top scientists, AI engineers who are pushing back on this thing that they've spent all this time and, and resources in developing and asking some of these questions like, what, are, what is the impact going to be? Is it worth it? What are the costs? What are the benefits? Yeah, like let's slow down. Let's take six months off. Let's think more deeply together about it. Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park clearly mm -hmm. stands as a cautionary tale about science. You know, like the comedian Patton Oswalt. Yeah, he's a, he's Remington the Rat in Ratatouille. Yeah. A little short line: Science all about coulda, not shoulda. Right. Yeah, very succinctly. We're always going to be hopefully evaluating in every generation new technology. I always think of one thing where people think, oh, e-readers, I really miss books. People say, oh, books, I really miss scrolls. Scrolls, <laughs> I really miss clay tablets. Oh, right. Tablets, I really miss cave paintings. You know, it's... <laughs> It's the same thing. I saw one thing where people were really worried about novels, that young mm -hmm. girls always had their nose in a novel and wouldn't look up around the, at the world around them. And now people right. wish their kids would read more. Yeah. Reading was the thing they were afraid of. Right. That's a thing that I think about. It's not, you know, media. That's what I had in mind. It's, yeah. Novels were seen as, oh my gosh, it's going to cause people to have all of these like emotions that they don't know how to handle because it's so descriptive and then when movies came and were a thing then people got worried about that that it was going to be so immersive that people and and so much over stimulation of your sensory systems that people wouldn't even know what to do with themselves and then we're seeing that again you know with different kinds of technologies like oh you know the internet games People having, you know, these handheld devices that they can be on all the time. Oh, and literally. The other day, Apple introduced their new uh, spatial computer called 
Vision Pro goggles. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Literally, it's the next level of immersive technology. So here it comes, like the next yeah. thing. Everyone's kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm wearing goggles to my children's birthday party. Like, why? Yeah. Like, is that so, a thing? Yeah. I would not advocate that right now. That was funny. But I'm I'm a crusty, you know, curmudgeon who likes reading things from scrolls. So excellent. There you have it. Uh, amen. All right. <laughs> Thank you for what a great chat about that topic. I just I just enjoyed this one in particular so much. Thank you. Yeah, me too. It was a lot of fun. So let's look back into the Geniza. Lindsay, okay. you have something that I have never heard of from the Geniza. Please tell me more about okay. it. Okay. So I am super excited about this. I had kind of given a, a shout out a bit at the beginning of the episode. And that is the Disney Channel original movie from 1999, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. So this movie came out, there was like a, a period of a few years where it seemed like every few months or a year they would release one of these movies on Disney Channel. and if you were of a particular age in that particular time period, it was a thing that everybody knew about this particular one. The plot is it's 2049. There are people who spend most of their time on an earth orbiting space station. The main character, Xenon, gets into trouble. And so she's sent back to earth to live with some relatives as punishment and you know kind of sees the differences between earth-based culture and space station culture but of course because it's supposed to be set 50 years in the future from the the perspective of 1999 and there's all this additional technology and i was really excited about this because one of the things that i i have been thinking a lot about in doing this podcast is the ways that sci-fi and fantasy genres get defined and that often pop cultural production that is primarily aimed at young girls or women is often not put in either the sci-fi or fantasy category and so part of this is me wanting to kind of reclaim and bring in like a xenon girl the 21st century is an excellent example of a sci-fi movie that was created for young people and particularly aimed at girls at preteen and teenage girls and so it's a lot of fun it has raven simone in it of cosby fame as the the best friend there's music my siblings who i don't know have listened to this podcast but i'm going to make them listen to this episode and I like know all of the words to the song that's sung by the musician Protozoa on the space station and you have have performed performed that at fathering family gatherings. So now now you know something about us. Sorry guys. Airing airing our family secrets to the world. But I'm curious if anyone who's listening has seen Xenon Girl 21st Century. And if you have opinions, and if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But but yeah, it it, you know, is fun and brings in technology that at the time was 
something that was very hard for me and maybe other people to imagine. It made sense that, oh, in 2049, we would have handheld devices that look a lot like smartphones that you can have video communication on. But we, in fact, got those a lot sooner than 2049. So who knows where we'll be then? Who knows? I was hearing along the lines of like the shows we watch showing us visions of future technology that we want. The space advisor to Star Trek, the current one, was talking about her role in helping them, you know, correct errors, speak as accurately as possible, um, and even help think about what could be happening in space that would create a crisis in an episode. Talked about some of the technologies that Star Trek showed us that people then craved, which drove the industry, like flip phones, tablets, etc. So, you know, I wonder if the tech on Xenon was part of what pushed to go to the handheld screen device. It certainly couldn't have hurt. Just move right. us towards that. That's going to yeah. be what I watch next month for sure. <laughs> okay, great. I may have to go back and revisit some of these things. Like, there's one movie that is a Disney Channel original movie also, Smart Home, that is a cautionary tale about mm. having all these smart home devices and is one of the reasons why I, I do not want a lot of those things in my house. So I'm traumatized along with probably other, you know, a whole generation of Disney Channel viewers. Interesting. Made for TV, smart mm. home. The house, I think, is sentient also. So it'd be like, be of course it is. There's a so now I'm going to have to watch this again, too. Have you watched Eureka? No. A sci-fi channel show set in the Northwest in, or Northeast. I can't tell Oregon from Maine on TV. And basically, a cop and his daughter stumble into this town that is just geniuses. And the sheriff ends up living in a smart house, which is sentient. So just maybe think of that show as well. So great show. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that concludes this month's episode of Sacred Realms, The Limits of Technology. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more. Our next episode will come out in about one month and will be on the theme of golems. Ooh, I am looking forward to that. Yes. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and delightful emails so far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. This episode was recorded on Zoom and edited using Descript. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next month, and may the Mafarshim be with you.